The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This I recall to mind and therefore have confidence that of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer so the guys up in tech can get all the sound finally worked out. All their problems done so that we can get ready to study and concentrate on God's Word without any more interruption. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have this opportunity, privilege, freedom in this nation to gather together as a body of believers and to study Your Word, that we are not constrained by... Uh, national forces or laws to teach a certain way or to refrain from teaching certain concepts, but that we have the freedom to teach your word completely and totally in every dimension of its truth. Father, we pray that as we gather together as believers, our focus would be on you, that we would realize that your word is the highest priority. As our Lord prayed, thy word is truth. Sanctify them by means of truth. And it is your word that is absolute truth and the means along with the filling of God the Holy Spirit, by which we are brought to spiritual maturity. Now, as we study these vital truths that we are extracting in our study of Judges, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, see how they apply in our own lives, and that we might have the courage and the willingness to apply these things in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, and we begin this morning a new section of Judges, a new segment as it were. For the last several months we have been in the episode, uh, really the Gideon narrative, because uh, even though chapter 9 deals with his uh, son Abimelech, that's all part of the Gideon narrative from about chapter 6 through chapter 9. Starting in chapter 10 we get into the Jephthah narrative and the introduction to that. And it just seems to get more and more bizarre. And the reason it gets more and more bizarre is because the nation has gone so deep into spiritual apostasy. They've rejected God. They've adopted so much of the thinking and the lifestyle of the Canaanite culture that surrounds them that they're virtually now indistinguishable from the Canaanites. Their leaders are indistinguishable from the Canaanites. And so their 
uh, all of the things that are going on just seem to be extremely uh, strange and odd to us. But this is a sign and, and or signifies how dangerous human viewpoint thinking and pagan thinking really is and how the effect that it can have on a culture, whether that culture is a broad national culture, a local culture, subculture, family culture, work culture, whatever it is, when human viewpoint dominates, the result is always going to be fragmentation and disruption. Now, let's pick up the overall theme of Judges. Remember, the, the key verse is, there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That emphasized two principles. First of all, they had no physical king, but the emphasis is not on the fact that there is no monarchy. That's the standard interpretation of that passage. It's written later during the first monarchy of Saul, or maybe even later under David. And they're just emphasizing the absence of a physical king or absence of monarchy. But under the theocratic rule of law set forth in the Mosaic Law, God was viewed as the executive branch. So it's a theocracy. God is the king, but they're rejecting God as king. Once you reject God as the ultimate source of absolutes in a culture, that creates a vacuum. Something is going to get sucked into that vacuum. And what gets sucked into that vacuum are going to be human viewpoint standards. And depending upon how consistently they match up with the establishment principles of the Mosaic Law... You're going to have different degrees of disruption, disorder, instability in a society. Remember, establishment principles are the laws, the moral code, the ethics code that is uh, grounded or founded in the Mosaic Law that is applicable to believer and unbeliever alike. So that believer and unbeliever alike can apply certain principles and go to a certain level, but beyond that, only believers can go. You look at the Ten Commandments. Those were for believer and unbeliever alike. Prohibitions against murder, false witness, adultery were designed to protect individual rights and individual freedoms and to protect private ownership of property. The first section of the Ten Commandments focused on the spiritual dimension and their allegiance to God and excluding, even though the individuals in the culture might not have been believers, the obedience to the first five commandments applied nationally and was designed to exclude idolatry. Once idolatry would come in nationally and individually, it would open the nation up to slavery, to false doctrine, false teaching, which the New Testament reveals is ultimately doctrines of demons. And what it calls worldliness is the thinking of demons in James chapter 3, 13 through 15. So all false teaching comes under the category of worldliness, cosmic thinking, which is the thinking of demons, doctrines of demons, or human viewpoint. It ultimately boils down to the same thing. Those are roughly synonymous terms, just looking at those same ideas from different vantage points. So Israel succumbs in the book of Judges to the pressure of idolatry. They go negative to God. They reject doctrine and idolatry comes in. And as a result of violating the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments and their uh, adoption of idolatry, the nation becomes enslaved to false gods and false thinking. And as they become slaves in their soul, they become slaves eventually, either economically or militarily, to foreign powers. 
As we look at Judges, there's a cycle that takes place. There's disobedience to God, and then God brings divine discipline on the nation, and then there is a deliverance. You know, it's interesting, I just looked up on the overhead, and the red really fades out. I just got back from Los Angeles, went out there to teach a uh, sort of a summary of prophecy to uh, R.A. Williams Church, McCoy Memorial Baptist Church there in South L.A., and he just got himself a new PowerPoint projector, new LCD projector, and it's a 1,200 lumens. And I'm telling you, the colors really, really show up. So I guess I'm going to have to get on the on eBay and start looking for a more powerful projector. It's amazing how clear everything showed up. I mean, the reds just danced. I put red on this, and it just fades out. So anyway, back to our... Cycles here. The cycle of judges goes from disobedience to divine discipline. And then they cry out for deliverance and God delivers them. But it doesn't stay. There's, there's a lack of positive volition across the board culturally. While they may go through a generation after the deliverance, it's not long before they're back in disobedience, rejecting God. And they just go through this cycle again and again. The further, t- as time goes by through the period of the judges... The cycles get worse so that the culture as a whole deteriorates. It's in decline. The first judge is Othniel. Little, nothing is said negative about Othniel. Everything said about him is positive. And then with each successive judge, there's more and more indications and hints that they have succumbed to the thinking of the culture around them. And as a result of that, the nation, they, they reflect the human viewpoint, and there's further and further deterioration. Now, we have gone through the cycles of Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Gideon, the first four judges, and now we come to the sixth judge, Jephthah. The sixth judge, Jephthah. And as we approach the study of Jephthah, we're going to see one of the most uh, bizarre episodes. I can't help but think of, of word, can't find a word more extreme than that. It's the only instance of its kind in all of the Old Testament or in all of Scripture, and it's hard to even find a parallel to this in um, the ancient world. And then the final cycle is that of the judgeship of Samson, and Jephthah and Samson's judgeships must almost be understood uh, simultaneously. They, They do indeed overlap. And they indicate the stages of reversionism that the nation has gone through. We've studied the eight stages of reversionism. A believer is in spiritual advance and then for one reason or another begins to turn away from God. The scriptures in Judges 10 and Judges 2 use words like abandon, forsake, forget. And they emphasize not just some sort of passive ignoring of God, But whenever God is taken out of your life and your positive volition is reversed to negative volition, it is an active decision on the part of the believer. We may come up with all sorts of rationalizations and excuses for it. We're too busy, uh, too many things are going on in our life, uh, whatever it might be. But it is still emphasized in Scripture. It's a conscious decision to reject doctrine. It begins with reaction and distraction. And that emphasizes the fact that some event happens in life. Sometimes it may involve an increased demand at work. Sometimes it it may involve increased demands at home. Sometimes it it might involve uh, 
uh, health problems, whatever it might be. There's some situations. There's sometimes there's reaction to a personality, a pastor, somebody else in the congregation. Uh, you get mad, you get angry at somebody, uh, or you react to some behavior, and all of a sudden that becomes an issue rather than doctrine. And so there's a reaction and a distraction away from doctrine, and suddenly doctrine's no longer the number one priority. As you stay in that stage and you start forgetting doctrine and focusing more on the human viewpoint concepts that are now influencing your soul, you begin to look somewhere else for happiness, for meaning, for purpose in life. That leads to soul poverty. The Scripture says that, that get, uh, referring to the Jews, that God gave them what they asked for, but He sent leanness to their soul. Leanness to their soul. And that emphasizes the fact that as you search for happiness in, in all the details of life, it comes up empty and there is further and further frustration and dissatisfaction with life. This then leads to emotionalism. People feed on emotion, on emotional high, trying to find real happiness, confusing the happiness God provides with emotion. And so then they begin to run their life based on emotion. Now, this can happen culturally and often happens as a result of... Uh, of um, mysticism and the influence of mysticism and subjectivism in a culture. And that's where we see ourselves nationally right now. Is it, and emo, Emotion is the number one criterion for anything in life, just about. And even the questions listen sometimes to the correspondence, the uh, new, uh, news reporters and the questions they ask the people they're interviewing and how much they emphasize on how you feel about something. What, what, how did that cause you to feel? And... and uh, that sort of thing. It just goes on and on and to, to the point of making us somewhat bilious. Then this intensifies into a more ingrained negative volition, which leads to a complete darkness in the soul because doctrine is no longer there. And that eventually hardens the heart, the Scripture says, what we call scar tissue in the soul. And that leads finally to cosmic degeneracy, full-blown paganism, rejection of God, rejection of doctrine, atheism, idolatry, and everything that goes along with it. <coughs> this is a pattern that we have seen culturally in Israel during the period of the judges, and that's exactly what's going on uh, in the lives of most of the individuals, including the leadership. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because many of these people, Gideon, Jephthah, Deborah, Barak, Samson, are listed in Hebrews 11 which emphasizes their faith, that they were spiritual giants. For the most case, they were spiritual pygmies. But at one particular time in their life or other, they uh, trusted God at a crucial time as leaders of Israel. And for that, God honors them. And that should be a, a tremendous example and encouragement to us because we're made the same way they are. We have the same problem with the sin nature that they do and that God recognizes how frail and weak we are and his grace still overrides our weaknesses. And that's really the emphasis that we see in Judges from this point on. The nation has so deteriorated and become so entrenched in paganism and it so colors everything in the life and thinking of the, of the nation that uh, uh, you would think that God would take them out under the fifth cycle of discipline at this point, but he is gracious and he continues to supply deliverers for them, despite the fact that there is no spiritual recovery in the nation. So look at Judges chapter 10, 
verse 1. Judges chapter 10, verse 1, we read, After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And a... Um, let me see, I'm reading from two different translations. Let me stick with one translation. Now, after Abimelech died, the Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty-three years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. Now, when we look at something like that, there's, there's more that's, obviously, a lot more that's left out than, than we're told about. So we can uh, make a few points about Tola, but we can't say a whole lot because we're not told a whole lot. One of the first things that we should notice as we get into this section is that it begins in 10.1 and extends down through chapter 12, verse 15. Now, if you hold your place here at 10.1, I want you to turn over to chapter 12 and look at verse 8 through 13. In verse 8, we're introduced to three other... These are called minor judges because so little information is given to us about them. We're told there about Ibzan of Bethlehem in verse 8, Elon the Zebulonite in verse 11 and 12, and Abdon in verses 13 through 15. Very little is said about them as there is little said about Tola and Jair in 10, 1 through 5. What is interesting is, just from a literary standpoint, is that you have these five minor judges, two and three, two at the very beginning of the Jephthah episode and three at the end that sort of frame it. And they're going to tell us something about, and the reason the authors included that is just to emphasize a couple of points about what's happening among the leadership in Israel at this time. One of the points that, in, in terms of looking at this entire scheme, is that these men are not raised up by God. Nothing is said about God raising these men up. Nothing is said about their devotion to God. Nothing is said about their spiritual life at all or their judgeships being related to God at all. And that tells us that... that, um, but they do deliver Israel. So it de-emphasizes the spiritual aspect of these men, while at the same time it emphasizes that God, in His providential care of Israel, is still raising up men who are providing some sort of protection and leadership for the nation, despite the fact that the nation is in full-blown apostasy and rebellion against God. So the emphasis throughout this section is on the faithfulness of God in delivering Israel and bringing about his plan despite the continuing and increasing reversionism of the nation. It is a testimony to God's grace. Only Tola, this first minor judge, is given a, um, a record in history that seems to emphasize something positive about him, though little is said. Let's look at what's said. It says, now after Abimelech died, so immediately the author wants us to contrast this judge with Abimelech. There arose to save Israel, according to the, um, both uh, New King James and New American Standard. The, the Hebrew word translated to save is Yasha, from which we get Jesus' name, Yeshua, 
meaning to save or to deliver. It is the Old Testament counterpart to sozo. And it doesn't mean simply to save in terms of saving someone from eternity in the lake of fire. It also has the connotation of to deliver or to rescue. And so you always have to look at the context to find out what you're being delivered from or rescued from. And obviously they're being delivered or rescued from foreign powers, disorder, from instability in the nation. And this is a man who's going to provide leadership. So it should best be translated to deliver Israel. After Abimelech, there arose to deliver Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Now, now we don't know who Pua, Dodo were. Issachar was one of the uh, sons of Jacob and one of the tribes of Jacob. So he is an Issacharite who is living down in the central part of of uh, Israel in the hill country of Ephraim. We don't know who Pua or Dodo were, but the writer is emphasizing the fact that this is a real historical individual. If you were a Jew reading this about the time in which it was written, you probably knew who those people were. So this is an indication this is not just some mythical figure somebody made up, but this is a person who is located in uh, space-time history and he has a specific genealogy. Now, it tells us that he arose to save Israel, to deliver Israel. Notice the verbs. He saved Israel. He lived in, the Shem- in Shemir, which was in the central part of, of Ephraim. We don't know exactly where it was, probably uh, uh, in the central part of Ephraim. He, he delivered. He lived. He judged for 23 years, so there's specificity in terms of the time frame there. He died and he was buried. Now, the interesting thing is when you look at these verbs, they emphasize a regularity, a consistency, and a stability to his reign. He delivered, he lived, he judged, he died, he was buried. There's a pattern there. It's a normal pattern. So what we can infer from this is after the instability of the period of Abimelech, that there was a period of stability brought in under Tola. Now, Tola's name means worm, so it, the emphasis here is on the fact that he's, he's of somewhat lowly uh, birth or lowly presence. It may indicate that he, is, he has a level of humility, and this would be in contrast to Abimelech and Abimelech's arrogance and desire for tyranny. Also, Ephraim is located across the border. Let's see if I have a map here. Ephraim is located in this central highlands area, just across uh, or just south of the area of Shechem, just here. There's, if you look on the map, there's a little gray area here. That's where Mount Gerizim is located. And Shechem was located just on the sort of shoal, just to the south southeast uh, of uh, Mount Gerizim, so just across the border from Ephraim. So the writer wants us to notice certain things in contrast to what has been going on before. It's that God has raised up now a judge. This is the first judge since Gideon. And he brings a level of stability to the nation. And that's about all that we can say about Tola. Then we have a second Judge, a second judge who is a, called Jair, and he is a Gileadite. Now, his name, Jair, means may God enlighten. 
and he is a descendant of Manasseh. The tribe of Manasseh has settled across the Jordan in the area indicated. Uh, well, Gilead really extends from up north near the Sea of Galilee, up in this area up here where you have the tribe of Manasseh located on the Transjordan, and it goes south down to the Dead Sea to the border of Moab, which is located in this general vicinity. So there's about 60 miles from north to south in the region known as Gilead, which is comprised, or you have both Gad in the south, Manasseh, the tribe in the north, um, are settled into this area of, of Gilead. And this begins to shift our attention now away from what's happening in central Israel. All the judges that we have seen up to this point have been operating for the most part in this central area. Now we're going to move across the Transjordan and we're going to see the problems and the pressures that have been brought to bear on the tribes across the Jordan. We read, After him, Jair the Gileadite arose, and he judged Israel for 22 years. So now we have a period of 22 and 23 is 45-year period of relative stability. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. Now the word here for donkey in the Hebrew, there's a couple of different words, and this is the word uh, ayarim, and not the word chamor, and they both refer to a donkey, but an ayarim donkey is a donkey that is ridden as opposed to one that is a, a pack animal. And so the image here is of something, someone who is wealthy enough to not only have donkeys, but to ride them rather than using them for pack animals, and that indicates wealth. Furthermore, notice he had 30 sons. Now that takes us back to, um, that would indicate, first of all, he probably had more than one wife. Either that or she was an extremely exhausted woman. But the picture reminds us of Gideon and Gideon's attempts to act like an ancient Near Eastern monarch. He took numerous wives, and he had 70 sons. We don't know how many daughters he had as well, but he had 70 sons. So the idea of multiple wives and large numbers of children was something that was indicative of a person trying to act as a powerful, influential person, if not trying to act as a monarch. So once again, we see the, the judges here are not acting as servants to the people, but they are trying to uh, uh, develop their own power base. We see once again the shift towards uh, tyranny from these uh, local leaders that are raised up. So we're told he had 30 sons, rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havot Jair, to this day, that is the towns of Jair to this day, that is the time in which this was written. And then we're told Jair died and he was buried in Camon, which is one of the villages in Gilead in the Transjordan. Now, the emphasis here where it is a little bit of a contrast to Tola. Tola has nothing negative said about him. He is said to deliver Israel, to, to, to save Israel. And we saw that the word there, Yeshua, indicates deliverance or salvation, which is a positive term. We don't even have that said about Jair. Some of the things you, we can pick up from this deal with what's not said. It's not an argument from silence. What we see here is that the writer of, of, 
of Judges is emphasizing the spiritual decadence of the nation. So the absence of any indication that God raises them up, the absence of any words that carry a positive connotation to them, tells us something, that that there was nothing positive to say, and the absence of a positive statement uh, really says a lot about these particular judges. There wasn't a lot positive to say about them. And the, the only thing he wants us to notice because of his emphasis on the 30 sons, the 30 donkeys, and the 30 cities is he's establishing a bit of a dynasty, it seems, and he's um, building his own power base. And this is what becomes indicative of any kind of pagan society. We studied this under the doctrine of tyranny when we were studying Abimelech, is that in the, at, when God is removed as the absolute authority, then man seeks to move into that vacuum. He creates his own standards. And then some institution in the human realm seeks to move in to be that absolute controlling authoritative force. And usually it is the state under some form of dictatorial tyranny. And this was exemplified in the ancient world because if you went out from Israel all over, uh, all over the ancient world, whether you went south, west to Egypt, whether you went towards the east in, in uh, Syria, Babylonia, and those nations, whether you went to the Hittites, what you saw is men rising to power who either claimed to be deity in the case of the Egyptians or the mouthpiece of the, of the gods in the case of the Mesopotamian nations, and they exercised a form of authority and tyranny that would put anything that we're familiar with in modern times to shame. They were absolute dictators in their, in their time. Not even the, the greatest dictators of our time, for example, uh, Saddam Hussein or going back a little bit to Hitler or Stalin or Lenin. None exercised the kind of uh, absolute authority these ancient leaders exercised. So what we see here is that the, um, the influence of paganism on the concepts of leadership and authority in the nation are, are fairly profound. So these leaders are operating on these, these pagan concepts, and they're not seeking to really serve the nation. Well, in the midst of this, of course, it doesn't surprise us that once again Israel goes through the cycle of disobedience. Chapter 10, verse 6 reads, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there we see the first time in this chapter the mention of the Lord. In fact, this is the first time we have Yahweh mentioned in, since chapter uh, 8. And this emphasizes His covenant relationship, His covenant responsibility to the nation. This is based on the four-letter word for God in the Hebrew called the sacred tetragrammaton, which refers to the sacred four letters. And it looks like this in Hebrew, and it's transliterated Y-H-W-H. Now, we can be pretty sure, there, there weren't any vowels in ancient Hebrew, but we can be pretty sure the first one is a, an A, because of the, this is often used as a suffix in human names. So we can, uh, we can guess pretty much what that was. And this was probably a short E, Yahweh. And this is how it was pronounced. Whenever the Jews read it, they, they had a, a deep respect for the name. They would never pronounce it, so they would read Adonai, meaning Lord, instead of ever pronouncing the sacred tetragrammaton. But it is built off of the verb Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H, which means to be. And when, when Moses was commissioned by God to deliver the nation, he said, whom should I tell the Jews sent me? 
And God replied, gave him this name, and said, I am that I am. And this is the name then that is specifically associated with the Mosaic law, and therefore it is always used in passages that where the emphasis at some level is on God's covenant relationship to the nation. Now, sometimes God's referred to as Elohim, and that was more of a generic word for God, and would be emphasizing a different aspect of His character. But especially in a context like this, when we've gone several chapters without any mention of God as Yahweh, to have that name here is a reminder, a subtle reminder, that God is the one who has entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. Israel is His special people, and yet they are rejecting Him. The children of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, too often when we see a passage like that, we think of, well, what's evil? And we think of whatever our favorite sins are, and that's what they must have been doing. But if you do a study in the Old Testament of this phrase, and you find it again and again and again, you find it when all the negative kings, all the kings in the northern kingdom, that so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord, and, and you always find the same statements. They committed the sins, when it deals with the kings in the northern, the northern kingdom, it says they followed the sins of, Jer- of um, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And what did he do? He set up a golden calf up in Samaria to be worshipped as a, in competition to God at, at the central sanctuary in the temple in Jerusalem. And you find the same emphasis here. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The word again emphasizes the repetitiveness of Israel's sin. See, we often commit sins over and over and over again. And we're going to see that that uh, does have a, uh, does have, produces a certain reaction in God. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. Now this is a, this explains what the evil is. The evil is idolatry. The evil is substituting a false god for the true god. It's not any other sin. There's all kinds of other sins that they committed as a result of this, but the core issue is at this point it's negative volition, rejecting God. That's at the core of every sin because at some level what we're saying is I'm going to determine what's right and wrong in my life, not God. And whenever we sin, whenever we uh, start operating on the sin nature, then at that point what is happening is we are basically rejecting God as an authority in our life. So this is where it begins, the rejection of God and the substitution of a false god, whether it's a a concrete idol as they were serving, or whether in our case, in modern times, we serve more sophisticated idols of our thinking. So again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Now that is particularly... uh, in, indicative of, um, of the Canaanite culture. Baal was the chief god related, male god related to fertility, and the Asherah, the O-T-H, is a, is a plural form of the word, various uh, goddesses uh, that came together as known as the Asherah, and that was the female counterpart to Baal and the female goddess of fertility. So they enslaved themselves. The word for serve is the Hebrew word avad, which means to work, to worship, but it also has that idea of to be enslaved to or to serve. And what the emphasis here is, is that whenever we get out, whenever we're under the control of the sin nature, Romans 6 says we become slaves of unrighteousness. And this is the foundation of all the problems in Israel. The problems that they have 
are not the result of bad leadership. They're not the result of a, of a bad legal system. They're not the result of any other factor in their environment. They're the result of a spiritual rejection of God. Now, all of those other things, the bad leadership, the bad, bad administration, uh, poor military, bad economics, all of that were the consequences, ultimately, of a uh, spiritual rejection of God. So they serve the Baals and the Asherah. And then there's a listing of the gods they go into. Now, this is important to understand the dynamics here. The gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, that was the Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians up on the Mediterranean coast northwest of Israel, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon. Moab and Ammon, remember, were the sons of Lot. Lot was Abram's nephew. Lot departed from Abram, lived for a while at Sodom and Gomorrah. After he left there at the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, he left. His wife was turned to salt, so he's left with his two daughters who got him drunk one night, and they committed incest with him, and they each got pregnant. One had a son named Moab. The other had a son named Ammon. And God had promised to protect them because of their relationship with Abraham, consequence of the Abrahamic, the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, and they were given land that was theirs that was to be to the southeast of Israel. If you look at the map, it's down in this area. Here's Moab. Uh, Moab is south here, and then up this area located here is uh, the area for Ammon. Now, that name, Ammon, continues today as Ammon, the capital of Jordan. So, this has its, the situation today has its Roots, of course, in ancient biblical history. So they worship all of these various gods, but what can we learn about these gods? To under, the writer before has not said this. In fact, this passage here is very similar to one earlier in the, in the um, I don't have it up here, earlier in the, in the book. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, in Judges chapter, let's turn back to Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and we'll see a parallel passage. This is in the section that is summarizing the, the cycles of disobedience and deliverance in Israel. Notice the parallel with what we have here in Judges 10, 6 and following. Starting in verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people. Now, there we're not told who those gods are. They're just stated generally as other gods from among the gods of the people who are all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Ashtaroths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands, or literally he sold them, into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of, of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before the, their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Now, I want, I want to come back to that word, but we have the word distressed there, and we find that same word back in our passage in Judges chapter 10. 
And we look at these gods that are mentioned here, the gods of of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And we need to look for a minute at study a little bit about these gods. Now, we don't know a lot about the various gods that some of these people worship. We do, of course, the uh, gods of Sidon because they were Canaanites, and we know a lot of that those were the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Then we have the gods of Moab. Now, the chief god in Moab... Let me advance a little bit. We're going to have to skip through a couple of slides here. There we go. Had that out of order. And this is um, an inscription on the overhead that Misha, the king of Moab, wrote on what's called the Moabite stone that was... um, his dedication on the Misha, this is called the Misha Steel, Stila, and this is his dedication to Chemosh to show how closely identified the Moabites were with this god Chemosh. I am Misha, son of Chemosh, king of Moab the Dibonite. My father reigned over Moab 30 years, and I reigned after my father. Now, I built the, this high place to Chemosh in Karho, a high place of salvation, because he saved me from all the kings and because he made me victorious against all my enemies. Notice how he emphasized everything comes from his god, Chemosh. This is the national deity of the Moabites. Omri was king of Israel, and he afflicted Moab many days because Chemosh was angry with his land. In other words, the reason we were defeated was because our god was mad at us. Then his son succeeded him, Omri's son, succeeded him, that's Ahab, and he also said, I will afflict Moab. And in my days he said so, but I was victorious against him and his house, and Israel was utterly destroyed forever. Well, they weren't destroyed forever, but they were defeated. Now Omri had taken possession of all the land of Mahadva and had dwelled in it during his time and half the days of his son, 40 years. But Chemosh dwelt in it in my time. In other words, there's this close identification of Moab to Chemosh. Well, one of the interesting things that we know about Chemosh is that he was... Uh, Worship sometimes. He was similar to Molech. These are almost interchangeable gods at times. And in both, of the, in, with, in both cases, they were worshipped at times with child sacrifice and human sacrifice. So this is not a foreign concept. Now, this, is, this plays a major role in understanding what's going to happen in Judges 11. That they are influenced now by these gods, the Canaanite gods, where human sacrifice was practiced. And the thing was that you would make a bargain with God, and if you were extremely serious in your intent, then that would be backed up by offering the life of your child. It wasn't an everyday thing. We're not talking about the kind of human sacrifice that characterized the uh, worship of uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl in Mexico where at one time they were dedicating the temple to him in Mexico City and they sacrificed between 20 and 40,000 human sacri- humans within a period of days so that the blood flowed knee-deep as you were walking up the steps to the top of the temple. And the whole city reeked from just the blood that was shed during that time. And there was just one sacrifice after another where they would bring one prisoner in and they would put him on the altar and they would cut his throat, and then they, it was like an assembly line, just one sacrifice after another went, went on 24 hours a day for several weeks as they were dedicating the temple. Now, this is not that kind, that level of human sacrifice. 
in the ancient Near East, it occurred only rarely, but it was at times of personal or national calamity or distress when people were at the sort of the ends of their rope and they had to convince God with the most serious bargain they could think of and then they would sacrifice a child in order to uh, convince God that to do what they wanted him to do. It's not uh, the same degree today, but it's the same kind of theology that characterizes much of what is known as health and wealth gospel uh, prosperity theology today, that, that people are making bargains with God. And the emphasis that you have in this pr- prosperity theology and all the emphasis in money that goes with it is that, God, I will give you X number of dollars and then you'll give it back to me tenfold. And it's the same idea of manipulation of God. And this is the underlying theme in this whole episode in chapter 10 and chapter 11 is the manipulativeness of the leadership here. And we're going to see that specifically uh, in the person of Jephthah. So the background here tells us that they are being, the Jews are being influenced by the idolatry of these foreign nations, specifically the Moabites. The Ammonites also worshipped a god that, uh, where, where there was some, anim, uh, some human sacrifice and the gods of the Philistines. And then it goes on to say in verse 7 or verse 6, they, they forsook the Lord, which meant Azab from the Hebrew Azab. They abandoned God. They willingly left Him. They abandoned God and did not serve Him. They did not, this emphasizes their intentional rejection of God. And the result is given then in verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people. Now, the first thing I want to note is that the phrase, the anger of the Lord. Now, this seems to indicate as if God has some sort of emotional reaction. And it's amazing how many commentators and how many people look at this and say, well, see, this shows that God has emotion. Well, we've gone over this before, and I just want to rehearse it just a little bit and remind you that this does not mean that God has emotion. You have a Hebrew word here, af plus the verb harar. Now, af is A-P-H and harar, H-A-R-A-R. Af refers to the nose. Harar means to burn or to turn red. Now, the question here, when we try to understand what's going on with the anger of the Lord, is whether this is a literal phrase or a figurative phrase. I mean, that's the first stage in interpretation. You have to ask, is this a figure of speech or is this a literal statement? Well, in the English, it looks like it could be literal. But if you get into the Hebrew, you realize that even the Hebrew statement is a, a metaphor. It is what is called an anthropomorphism. Anthropos means man, and morphism, from the word Greek morphos, means um, form. So it is the attribution of human form to God, which um, which He does not actually possess. In order to communicate something about God's plans or God's policy to mankind using a point of common reference. 
That's what an anthropomorphism is. Now, God does not have a literal nose to turn red or to burn. So, what we're, when, when the question came up, somebody asked me this one time, well, what do you do with the phrase, God was angry? As an, as, you're, you're presupposing that that's a figure of speech. And I said, no, look at the Hebrew. The Hebrew indicates that it is a figure of speech to begin with. It's an anthropomorphism to start with. The problem is, how figurative is this? Well, it uses an anthropomorphism to communicate an anthropopathism. An anthropopathism comes from the Greek anthropos, meaning man, pathos, meaning emotion. And it's the same thing. It is similar to an anthropomorphism. It is the attribution of human emotion to God, which he does not actually possess in order to communicate something about God's plans and policies. Now, why do I say that this God doesn't actually get angry? In the New Testament, you might say, well, there's all these passages about God's anger, God's wrath. Over and over again, it talks about the wrath of God, the wrath of God, the wrath of God. And wrath seems to indicate some intense emotion. And there's a key word, it's intensity. That's the thrust of this um, figure of speech, is to emphasize the intensity of God's response to man's sinfulness. But the emphasis, if you look at passages, for one, the one that uh, I think um, when uh, Pastor Cortez was teaching here on Wednesday night, he's been going through Romans chapter 1 the last couple of times I was gone, and there you see the application of divine justice to man's rejection of him in several stages of wrath. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is a primary term used in the book of Romans, to express God's judicial action towards rebellious mankind. Now, let me pose just a good academic question here. Is it a good thing, a beneficial thing, a wise thing to have a judge who makes his decisions based on emotion? No, it's not. See, if wrath of God, as it's explained in the New Testament... If the wrath of God, which is always associated with the application of his justice to man's disobedience, is emotional, then what we have is a God in heaven who is operating judicially on the basis of emotion. And that means he's not impartial. That would imply that it is simp- he's out of control. That would imply a number of things that we cannot be comfortable with. Wrath is used, the concept of wrath is used and anger is used because... In human experience, this emphasizes an intensity, a strength of reaction to something. When something horrible takes place, the most extreme way in which we react is in terms of wrath. But God is responding from His justice. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. And this is emphasizing the condemnation function of the justice of God towards rebellious mankind. And a phrase like this, an anthropopathism like this, indicates the intensity and the extremity of God's uh, response to Israel's sinfulness. So it's not to be taken as an emotional reaction, but as a the intensity of God's judicial condemnation of the nation for their disobedience to to his law and their rejection of him. So we're told in verse 7, 
The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Literally, or, or what we would take it, the justice of God uh, condemned Israel strongly. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. Now, if you have a map of Israel in front of you, I'm not going to go back to it, but if you have a map, the Philistines are down to the southwest along the Mediterranean Sea uh, sea coast. The Ammonites are off to their east. So what you have is God's using a hammer and anvil here to crush the nation. He's going to bring in the Philistines from one side and hit them on their, their west flank, and he's going to bring in the Ammonites from the other side. We go on to verse 8. And they afflicted and crushed. Extremely strong words. In the Hebrew, it reads, Vayiratsu, Vayiratsu, Ratsats and Ra'ats. So if you're reading that in the Hebrew, there, there's assonance there. They, they rhyme, Ra'ats and Ratsats. And the, the double use there just, just emphasize the seriousness of what happens. They are afflicted and crushed. They are, uh, the word crushed is rarely used in the Hebrew, but it occurred in the previous passage in Judges chapter 10 when we were told that the uh, upper millstone landed on uh, Abimelech's head and crushed it. So there's the image of what is happening between these, these two pincher movements, so to speak. God working strategically to um, bring Israel to their knees and and to discipline them. So they were afflicted and, and they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. And for 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. So this is talk, talk, emphasizing what's happening across the Jordan. And there the, we're going to focus first on the Ammonites and the Ammonite oppression which occurs in the Transjordan. And then in the next judgeship in Samson, we're going to focus on the Philistine oppression coming from the other side. So Samson and Jephthah have judgeships that overlap. The Ammonite oppression goes from 1124 B.C. to 1106 B.C. And the Philistine oppression goes from 1124 B.C. to 1084. It's not ended until uh, the Battle of Aphek when they are defeated uh, by Saul. Well, no, they're not... The Philistine oppression really isn't broken until uh, much, much later. Saul begins to break it, but David's the one who finally ends it. Jephthah's life goes from 1150 to 1100 B.C., whereas Samson's life overlaps from 1123 to 1084 B.C. So these last two judges in this book have lives and judgeships that not only overlap with each other, but they also overlap with Samuel. So what happens from this point on in the book of Judges is, is overlapping time-wise with what takes place at the beginning of the book of Samuel. It's, there we have it. it. The Philistine oppression ends at the Battle of Mizpah, First uh, Samuel 7.11 in 1084 B.C. Now the text goes on to say that the children of Israel cried out, uh, that this went on for 18 years, and then verse 9, Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Now, here we have the Hebrew word, sarar. 
And this means, this is an intense word, T-S or T-Z-A-R-A-R. And so RAR means to be stressed. See, what we have here is the outside pressure of adversity that is producing the inside pressure of stress in the soul in the Jews at that time. And this is divine discipline. This is how God often uh, responds to the believer's sinfulness as he brings to bear some sort of uh, serious discipline in the life. And if we don't respond with the stress busters, if we don't respond biblically through confession of sin so that we can be restored to fellowship, recover the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and begin to use God's spiritual uh, problem-solving devices, then we are just going to deteriorate further and further into reversionism. And what we find here is that this word distressed is used at the end of verse 9. It's used at the end of verse 13. It's used again several other times in this passage to emphasize the fact that the nation has not been responding biblically, but there is fragmentation in their soul and as a consequence, fragmentation in the nation. So this tells us what the problem is and gets us up to verse 10 where we begin to see the nation Israel respond by confessing their sin. And then in verse 11, we'll see that God really doesn't want to accept it. And he's going to emphasize the fact that, well, you just keep crying out to me, but there is no real change or spiritual change among the people. And we'll look at what that means when we come back next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word today and to to realize your grace in our lives that despite the Uh, continued sinfulness despite our rebelliousness at times, that you are always faithful to us just as you were always faithful to Israel in the past. Father, we thank you that in your love for us that you have not turned your back on us, but indeed for the human race you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is uh, unsaved or uncertain of their salvation, that they would make that sure and certain right now. All you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't need to make a bargain with God, reform your life, join the church, or do anything else that's a result of human strength or human effort. Scripture says simply to believe, and God in His omniscience know who knows who believes and who does not believe that Christ died for their sins. Father, we pray for those of us who are believers already that we would be challenged by what we are studying that this would help us to see how serious it is in our own lives to remove the human viewpoint thinking from our own souls and to replace it with Bible doctrine, that we may be able to think as you think and that we may be able to live as you would have us to live, that you might be glorified in time and in eternity. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.